Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week I was joined by garden expert Claire Vokins, one half of Wilson Vokins with her business partner Sarah Wilson. We talked about the reasons why gardens often need rehab, how garden designers and horticulturalists can leverage an interest in climate change to help improve the contribution of gardens to their local ecology and save a lot of the workload of looking after them in the process, and about some of the ways that younger clients are starting to take a more hands-on approach to their own gardens. We began by speaking about the fantastic charity Veterans Growth, based in East Sussex, which is weaving horticultural therapy into more traditional therapeutic pathways for former servicemen and women suffering from PTSD and related conditions. Claire's insights about what's involved on the ground in applying a lot of what we know about the benefits of access to nature are striking and challenge all of us to do more to bring to the foreground the tangible benefits of the green spaces we help to specify, install or care for. It's a really wonderful initiative and you can find out more in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy. So Claire, thanks ever so much for joining me on this week's uh, Making Good podcast. Would you mind um, introducing yourself? Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me and asking me to be on your podcast. Um, So I'm Claire Vokins. Um, I live in London and I have been working in the horticultural industry officially for about five years now, coming up to six years. Um, Got my own little garden maintenance company. Um, I'm also working with Sarah Wilson with a design company. and yeah, I just try and remain involved in horticulture as much as I can, really. Great stuff. Well, I, there's definitely a particular angle to the work that you're doing that we've spoken about before that I'd like to bring up in, in due course. But I wonder if we could start um, with telling us about um, Veterans Growth, the organisation that you're um, that you're involved in. What is that? Um, who's it for? And, and, and why do you feel it's needed? OK, so Veterans Growth. Um, I was asked some time back, just over a year, actually, by Jason Stevens, the founder, to be a trustee. Um, so Veterans Growth is for the tri-services so that's Army, Air Force and Navy and ex-personnel who may be dealing with um, PTSD and other mental health issues Um, based down in Westfield outside Hastings near um, East Sussex it's where um, Jason lives himself Jason himself was in the Army for about 16 years um, and he was medically discharged in about 2016 and found that working outside being in the garden really really helped him throughout his treatment looking at the situation with um, ex-service personnel as it is at the moment Jason realized in 2018 that up to a certain point over 42 people had committed suicide and he wanted to do something to help these people out hence setting up veterans growth um, and he asked me to be a trustee as he knows I have some sort of tenuous link with the services myself after doing work experience when I was 15 at RAF Odium, um, but also having maintained contact with a lot of people um, from my time there. Also working in horticulture, the two sort of marry up together. So um, it's, it's definitely a service that's needed and we're hearing more and more about mental health with regards to the ex-service industry quite a lot at the moment so it's pretty much at the forefront of helping people out there yeah absolutely can you can you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of challenges that the um that the um the decommissioned personnel are are facing well these are men and women who generally 
have been, you know, they've been working to be able to cope with any situation. And um, I actually went on mental health first aid training for um, ex-service personnel. And there really is um, like a stigma about asking for help. You know, you've got these, these people who have been out on, in all these different parts of the world facing situations that you and I would never even face. Um, yet they can't ask for help themselves. Um, so they become isolated, um, severe anxiety, night terrors, um, and, and, you know, all the other kind of issues that come with mental health and PTSD. There are ways of going to the GP and asking for help, but it just doesn't seem to be working. Um, and we, we're hearing more and more about people who are suffering from this. Now, Veterans Grove with Jason, we've managed to set up um, some sort of really, really good links actually with part of the NHS called TILS, which um, actually stands for Transition, Intervention and a Liaison Service. So if anyone is, um, you know, feeling as if they need some help or it's just getting to that point where they, they can't go on any further, then they can either contact Veterans Grove directly or via their GP. And um, so you can do a self-referral and if you haven't yet had an assessment to find out, um, you know, how, how, what sort of treatment you need, then working with TILS, we can actually give you a face-to-face -face assessment pretty quickly and then um, within a fortnight, you can have a clinical appointment, which actually gets around the GP system pretty quick. Um, and once you have your assessment, then you can, you know, come on to one of our residential or even, you know, day not day release, but you, you, know, you don't have to live on site to, to work with us um, doing horticultural therapy, which could be anything from, you know, working in the veg section to building stuff on site that we need to doing repairs, just being outside, you know, in the soil. And that would run alongside with um, any treatment plan that you have. This is um, this is a great example, like fantastic example of, um, of 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 something that I think we all know to varying degrees, which is that being around nature is um, is good for you. And the fact that this is being recognised and prescribed in um, in in NHS and um, and and you know and the and the mental health side of the um, of the of the NHS in particular is 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 really encouraging. Can you tell me a little bit um, more about the setup over there? Oh God, we're so lucky. Um, Jason managed to find. Um, some land in uh, just outside Hastings called Westfield and it's a place called Rocks Farm and we have I think it's approximately seven acres of land at the moment with residential um, accommodation which is actually an, an oast house um, which we're currently uh, doing up so we can have people stay on site including families um, there's lots of outbuildings, barns, etc., and things like that. So at the moment, you know, we're, we're very much early stages with regards to building work, um, but the accommodation that we have, it's it'll give people the opportunity to stay there for you know two weeks whilst they're they're having their whilst they're on, well, excuse me while they're on their courses, but also with um, we can have family stay there as well. So if you have a male partner who is coming to the centre for therapy, then we can actually have the family there to support them and you know support the family at the same time, which is something which is pretty much unheard of actually to be able to support a full, you know a full family. 
Um, so the work that we're doing there is, you know, it's quite holistic, really. So you talked about horticultural therapy. Could we unpack that um, that phrase a little bit for those people who aren't familiar with it? So it's, I think horticultural therapy as a term can be quite broad. And I think we need to be a little bit careful about how we use it. The way we're using it at um, Veterans Growth is going to be alongside somebody's um, care plan, as it were. So it's not just being outside working with plants and you know digging up the vegetables and stuff like that but there will be a purpose to it um as an example we did a consultation um i don't know it's mid last year where we spoke to a number of veterans about what we're looking to do at veterans growth and it was brilliant they it was a completely open room and they very much got involved and very much on side with what we're doing but one of the guys was asking about whether he would have to share tools. And for you and me, of course, that's not a problem, sharing tools. You know, we, you know, if, if you work alongside someone and they go, can, can, you know, use your trowel, you're like, yeah, yeah, crack on. But for someone who may previously had an issue with um, a piece of equipment that they lent somebody and they got it back and it wasn't working at a time they didn't you know at a time that he needed it and actually sharing tools could be a really big issue for them and that's the sort of thing that would be brought up within their clinical assessment and using horticultural therapy it's something that we can work with that person on you know starting off with your own kit but eventually breaking it down that you don't mind borrowing somebody else's spade or you don't mind lending your tool to somebody else because you know the outcome may not be negative whereas an outcome of lending tools or equipment previously may have been quite negative for you so it's very much dependent on everybody's personal circumstances how the horticultural therapy will work alongside their own diagnosis and um their care plan so it weaves in and out of the therapeutic journey that the um that these um, these men and women are on anyway it's like you say one one of the other guys we were chatting to he, um you know we're looking at what sort of facilities we'd be offering at is at rocks farm and something we hadn't thought about was children on site and having families there some guys may have a trigger from having crying children around. So we'd have to make sure that all that kind of stuff is, you know, risk assessed and managed appropriately for everybody on site. But also someone else is saying, oh, you know, it's all well and good having a chill out space indoors, but if whatever I want to get away and just go for a walk. And that's made us look at maybe having some sort of nature trail on a quiet area outside but away from the main area that everyone's working in just so people can have that option to go and take a breath and calm down and reset themselves it sounds like there's an awful lot of um, potential permutations how many people you know of, of needs permutations of needs that are that are, that are there how many um, how many residents short term do you have at, um, at any point in time well, at the moment, we're unfortunately the, the storms that we've had have done some damage to the um, accommodation. So whilst we were starting to get it up and running, um, we've been set back a little bit. So we're having to have some work done. Um, but once it's ready to go with um, residential, we could probably have about eight to 12 people on a course at any one time, which is great. 
you know, and those courses are running all through the year. Yeah, fantastic. I guess, is this, um, is this like regulated by the NHS? How does it stand in relationship to the kind of... So it won't be regulated by the TILS, who I mentioned earlier on, the Transition Intervention and Liaison Service, they are under the NHS. So people can be referred by other groups or through their GP, or they can self-refer. Now, you know, we, we have to look at risk management and health and safety all the way through, not just for the people coming in, but for staff and, and visitors. So no one will be able to come on to a course unless they've had a full um, assessment by TILS and a mental health team. And just it just means that when, when people come on site to work with us, we can cater for them individually. You know, everybody's needs are going to be different. Everybody may have different, you know, different things that may trigger them, put them into a position where they feel vulnerable. And we just need to make sure that we can manage everybody on site the right way. Um, so years and years ago, I used to work on a, on a mental health team um, for one of the London boroughs. And, and mental health is massively complex. It, it's not going to be a one size fits all solution at all. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be a suck it and see, but we all have to be, um, you know, very clear about how we're how we're dealing with people and making sure they're comfortable with what we're doing as well sure understood and so one of the i guess one of the questions i have is um is the in insofar as you intersect with um you know with like established therapeutic channels organizations like the nhs how far have you had to justify explain quantify the benefits of um time with nature do they take it do they take it at face value or have, or have you had to kind of un- Me unearth the body of evidence? i haven't been on that side of things but i've seen where we've been applying for grants um and because we're still a relatively new charity we only got our charity number last year it's really hard to get funding because the people who we're applying to they want outcomes and it's very difficult to give outcomes when you haven't been up and running so it's like a it's a very circular thing at some point there has to be a break now i suppose luckily for us having jason as our ceo and founder and his experience with um horticultural therapy as part of the work that he's gone through um post leaving the services it's firsthand that it works um, and I think I think it was the Royal Hospital Chelsea. They once had um, like a horticultural therapy base there as well, which is no longer there for armed service personnel, which is a real shame. Um, so it's one of those things that we know through various reports from the NHS and the RHS that being outside is good for us, but it's um, it's making it work for each individual. Um, it's some people might not want to be near water. Some people might not like being outside when it's raining. Some people literally might not like getting their hands dirty. Do you know what I mean? So it's finding the right task for those people that's going to work for them. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it's a case of um, quite finely calibrating and structuring the experience for, exactly. the, for different people. Exactly, it's communication. Is it, is it, is it, it's, it's getting people to talk to us and telling us when they're uncomfortable and what, not necessarily why they're uncomfortable, but even if they can let us know how they feel when they're doing something, when they're uncomfortable, then 
we can work around that and work with it and try and break down, you know, those reasons for them. Do the um, do the family members that get to, that that come because obviously they it must be quite a traumatic experience having a loved one go through um, go through the experience of PTSD. Do they do they are they able to kind of work through some of the um, the, the tensions so and stresses at this that they stage? We haven't got to that point of having um, people residential, so that obviously means that families haven't been residential either. Um, but the idea is that. During the daytime, when the guys are on site having, you know, doing their work, having their therapy groups and, and everything else, then we would be taking the family off site and giving them some time out and, you know, a place to talk. Hopefully, they, you know, there may be um, more involvement for the family from that point of view, but it's just sometimes it's just having people around. So going through a process like that by yourself might be the right thing for you but you still want to come home and have your loved ones around to give you a hug and that's the idea of having the family um, availability there it's like they don't have to be involved in the therapy side of it but they're there while it's happening um and how do um what kind of feedback are you getting from the participants now how are you are you seeing the benefits in you know in their reactions I personally in their, haven't, um, i'm not there on site all the time but i know the guys that have been down there they've had um rose pruning courses and they've been out you know setting up some of the fencing to divide the land and all i've heard so far is that it's you know people want ro- more rose pruning courses they've enjoyed it they've been outside learning something new so you know switching their brain onto something else at the moment the um the work that's being done is by you know local volunteers and veterans from the hastings area um and you know even people from our industry are, are going down there when i say our industry i mean the horticultural industry are volunteering to go down and you know give some hands-on help as well so we're not at that point obviously because the, the residential is not up and running because it needs to be um fixed basically and <laughs> decorated after the storm's done what it done its worst um and we're actually in the middle of redesigning all the outdoor area as well so it's going to be ready for people with um, either in wheelchairs or, you know, having to use prosthetics and, you know, stuff like that to be able to walk around safely. So, you know, we're, we're accommodating physical disability as well there. It's, um, it's broad, it's, really it's huge and, and it's massively mm-hmm. overwhelming. Um, but it's also going to be amazing. Yeah, and it's doing and it's doing good. Let, this, this might be a good um, segue um, into um, into some of your wider work because I see a little bit of a, a parallel between um, <clears throat> between what you're, what you're, the, um, the the kind of the the basis for this um, for this project, which is you know the, the therapeutic benefits or the, the the benefits for people of um, who who may be in in acutely stressful um, situations of, um, of 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 access to taking care of and looking after um, like natural spaces. Like I hope this isn't too much of a leap, but 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 I understand that your 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 kind of specialism, your 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 um, your niche in um, in um, in the horticultural world is um, is people who've had beautiful gardens done that haven't um that haven't been looked after i'm sitting here chuckling so when i first come into the industry um i came in quite naive a little bit of a career changer and i literally use this phrase 
be a gardener, they said, um, a hell of a lot because, you know, we all hear how wonderful it is and we stand around pruning roses and deadheading and wandering around with hip trugs on and it's quite wonderful eating tea and cake, but it's not like that. Um, a lot of the gardens I go into, they have been, some of them been referred to me by garden designers right off the bat from when the garden's been created and sometimes even before that to, to look at planting plans and, and stuff like that. But as an example, one I started back in, oh, I went to view it back in August last year. Um, it had been designed by a very well-known designer um, about five years ago. And this, this designer contacted me, knows what I, you know, sort of what I enjoy doing, bringing gardens back to life. Said, would you mind going to have a look? They're looking for a new gardener. And so I went over there and I had to call him and say, I need your planting plan because I haven't got a clue what's going on here. Um, and once the planting plan had been sent over, it sort of became quite apparent that who had ever been looking after the garden previously did not have a dickies. Um, plants had been pulled out. Um, nothing had been pruned appropriately. It was, and it still is, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a mess and shockingly so. Um, some of the plants have been replaced with completely inappropriate planting. Um, for example, in the front driveway, I couldn't find the eight rose bushes or shrub roses that had been put in to one of the borders. Um, I had to wait for all the Oh no, what is it? Anemone, Henri Jobert, to die back to find them and found out that the gardener didn't like the hellebores, so he took all those out and put in the anemone instead. But the anemones were up at two, three foot tall, which is far too big for the roses. Client didn't even realise she had roses there. So it's. Yeah, I love doing that. And the first thing I do is I go in and do like a three or four hour assessment, depending on the size of the garden. And I generally find that um, most of the problems start in the soil. Um, hasn't Stuff hasn't been cleaned away when people have been pruning. The Again, same garden, the climate, or some roses they had hadn't been pruned appropriately for at least five years. And it was an absolute mess on the inside. And when I spoke to the client, she said, oh, it flowers a little bit, but not much. And uh, you sort of sit there and another one of my favourites is, uh, yeah, no shit Sherlock. No one's looked after it properly for you. But what happens is, is clients spend an absolute fortune on beautiful gardens and then either don't take it seriously or don't realise or don't think that they have to be looked after afterwards. So here's the here's yeah that's the that's the kind of thing that intrigues me. I'm now I'm I'm not a gardener. I've don't never do had it. a don't garden. Don't do it. It's expensive. Um, I, but, <laughs> <laughs> but so so is there is is it at what stage does um does the care of the space get mentioned or or is it kind of is it always are, are people are people I, promised as far fit as and I'm forget? Concerned, and a good garden designer will do this. Maintenance um, or development, I call it development actually, because the first couple of years you're not maintaining that garden, you're actually developing it to you know, become the garden that you want it to be. Um, that should be mentioned and spoken about within the first two or three questions of even meeting the client, because that's how you would be designing your garden. You need to be asking the client how much time 
honestly, can you be spending on your garden to look after it? How much money can you afford to spend afterwards for someone else to look after it if you haven't got time to look after it? And that in itself should start to be pointing you in a direction of what plants to be using. Um, everyone wants a low maintenance garden, but it still takes five minutes to sweep out concrete patio. Do you know what I mean? So let's just have a look at, you know, what kind of planting we can be using. Throw a couple of trees in. I mean, for the first couple of months, you're going to have to water them, but then you can just leave them for the next five years until they need pruning for the first time. You know, that's that's low maintenance or using um, perennials. Um, a lot of the time with perennials now, we used to cut them back in um, autumn, so you know, October, November time. But now we're not cutting them back till the end of February, beginning of March, because we're leaving up those perennials and the seed heads to give accommodation and hibernation for insects over winter. So even perennials have become less hard work than they used to be. And that used to be, a, you know, twice a year cutback. And now it's only once. So that's that's where we should be looking for low maintenance. Um, but I always use the car analogy. You spend... 20, 30,000 pounds on a brand new car, you put oil in it, you put fuel in it, you take it to someone else to be looked after once a year and, and have work done on it. You probably spend more on your garden, yet you don't service it afterwards. You go and see Dave down the pub for 10 pounds an hour and let him ruin it. So um, if you get a decent gardener, you don't have to spend that much actually having your garden looked after. So, so what are some of the things then that um, that people, um, that clients could um, could be planting or asking to be planted if they want to get things right first time? What kind of questions should they should they be asking garden designers? Look, look, I think the the clients have to be honest with themselves. Everyone wants a beautiful garden, okay? We see all these beautiful gardens, but beautiful gardens are too perfect and they're really really hard to look after. One of the things I would say is um, the more plants you have, probably the less work you have to do because you're not having to jet wash patios and, and you know, sweep off, uh, you know, stone walls and steam cleaned permeable stone and all that kind of stuff. Actually, the more plants you have, the less work you will need to do. Um, so that's number one. But it's being honest. If you've only got 10 minutes a week, tell the garden designer you've only got 10 minutes a week because the garden designer can then work out what will be appropriate for you. Um, I worked on a garden last year and the client wanted us to come in once a week to weed. Um, and at that time, there was probably two weeds a week because it had only just been planted and um, it was fully mulched. The client just didn't want to do that kind of work. Now, there is a balance and, and quite frankly I, I won't turn up to a client's house and just weed two weeds once a week it's not financially viable for us and however much money the client has it's just not going to be the way I'm going to work um, but at the same time that client was very shocked that the stone that had been used in her garden was being massively stained because it was permeable um, at the point of design, it should have been quite clear at some point that the client didn't want to be scrubbing and steaming stone. And she should have been offered a different kind of stone, which might have been more expensive in the short term, but over the long term would have saved her a lot of time and money. And that's where 
we need to make sure that clients are informed to have those kinds of conversations with with garden designers. Um, you mentioned perennials just a moment ago, and I'm interested. We see um, in 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 the green roofs that we work on, we see um, we see perennials and indeed annuals, natives um, um, specified quite a lot. And we certainly in, encourage um, uh, that as much as possible for um, for the biodiversity benefits. Is um, uh, I, I listened to um, to Sarah Wilson's Roots and All podcast on the biodiversity at Great Dixter recently, really inspiring. And I was, I was wondering, are are you hearing now? Are you finding in the conversations that you're having with clients, with designers at nurseries, that that biodiversity and the kind of the implication that that trying to do something, do our bit to help against fight against the implications of climate change, is that rising up the agenda in your in your you know in the conversations you're having? Massively. Um, I'm, I'm going to mention the word bandwagon because I believe there is a little bit of a bandwagon on that. Suddenly, if one's talking about doing, um, you know, wildlife gardening and wildflower seeds and, and you know all, all this kind of stuff, but actually, it's it's just it's simple gardening. I, I'm I'm getting to the point where it's the less gardening I do, the better the gardens are. Now, I don't know if that's a reflection on how bad a gardener I am, but um, <laughs> it, it really is a case of you know, just let nature crack on with it. it. She was doing perfectly well. The plants were doing perfectly well until gardeners turned up. And, um, you know, we, we, we turn up with all these chemicals and pruning and trying to control everything. But we're controlling it for us, and it hasn't exactly worked out. Um, so it's taken that step back. And I'm finding some of the new... If I get a contact from a client of a particular generation, and if I explain how I work, which is basically as chemical-free as practically possible, um, and as machinery-free um, as practically possible, um, well, powered machinery then they don't like it. They, they want us in with the weed killer and making it all look perfect. Um, so I won't work with those clients. It's, there, there's some people whose minds you're not going to change. However, there is a generation coming through of young families who are concerned about the way climate change and, and climate crisis is happening. They have children and they want to do the best they can do. And as soon as I say I'm not, well, I don't work with chemicals and we will not use uh, you know, powered machinery as far as practically possible, they're in. That They're into having a slightly more wild garden and letting the insects come in. And even if, you know, for the first six months, it's a case of, you know, just treating the soil and clearing out all the rubbish and, and looking for pest and disease. And once we've got that sorted out, Letting the garden naturally look after itself without chemicals, it makes a massive difference. Within six months to a year, that garden will look after itself. Um, you know, the ladybirds and, and will come in and, and eat the aphids and the birds will turn up and, and take care of the slugs and snails for you. And if you put in a small pond, then, you know, the newts and the frogs will look after the snugs and snails for you. So eventually it will look after itself. And I just think we need to get past this perfection that everyone seeks in the garden. Some stuff's going to die. Some stuff's going to get eaten. But that's just nature. Just let it be. 
yeah, keeping things in an artificially um, suspended state of you know beautiful perfection is um, it's 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 quite the opposite. I was at a talk recently um, by Tony Whitbread, um, who's um, an ecologist and used to be um, head of the um, or CEO of um, Sussex Wildlife Trust. He was talking about rewilding, and the, he was talking about the dynamic process between um, uh, plant succession, you know, communities of plants which develop, but also the fact that they um, storms will come in and um, and and knock um, and 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 drop a tree down in the middle of um, in the in the in the middle of a meadow that there'll be that there used to be ruminants that would um, that would wander wander through um, through pastures and and turn the ground over. Um, he gave. He, I mean, he's a wonderful science communicator. But this idea of the kind of the back and forth of um, of nature, I would being having its own having its own beauty, having having its own um, having its own. Um, satisfaction through creating spaces in which it can um, it can just do its thing of course we don't all have space like the you know the wonderful the wonderful nep estate but um, but certainly we can achieve this in small scale in our in our garden absolutely and it's it's, it's like looking at where you live and you know if you're really that interested you can look up to see if there's any um, you know various pollinators that may be dwindling in numbers in your area so for example down so the small blue butterfly um it's pretty prevalent mo- over most of the country but especially down south on the chalky areas and it particularly likes areas with um, kidney beach now if you decided that you worked out you lived in one of those areas and you wanted to do something to help out, then plant some kidney beech. You're then going to have space to you know, give that small blue butterfly somewhere to go, giving it the, the, the food and the nectar that it thrives on and therefore helping out the pollinators in your particular area. And that's actually not difficult. It it's, it just takes a little bit of reading or asking your gardener. You know, a good gardener will be able to look. If they don't know, they will know where to look to find out this kind of information. Um, encouraging wildlife as much as possible rather than you know, banning it from your garden completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, um, I mean, one of the ways that we um, we talk to clients about um, about green roofs with with that with that hut on just for a second is in terms of you know you've got um, you've got this triple SI down the road or an L L N R around the um, around the corner these are some of the um, the target species in the biodiversity action plan and these are the food sources so let's um, we we'll, we'll, we can do you any kind of green roof that you want but let's put maybe put in the corner put a few of these plants and then when we've attract when you've attracted them maybe um, maybe some some logs that can gradually um, crumble maybe some um, some open um some open stone area which um which is great for basking for um for you know for for solitary bees and for for butterflies and so forth do you um do you find that your um i mean i i'm the 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 phrases in my mind from the recent talk with um that i heard with tony but um it's one that i know is prevalent in ecological circles which is thinking about um intervent small interventions um fitting into a landscape scale perspective on what we're trying to do is that in the in the in the horticultural world in the gardening world do, do people think about like the kind of the wider context for any particular garden that they're trying to do um i don't know i mean I think it depends on the client and their interest in the world beyond their own garden. Um, and I think that's where us as, as professional gardeners can come in and actually educate to some extent. So 
I think over the last couple of years, the conversation about lawns and don't drag me too much into that one because I'd be quite outspoken about lawns. But um, I've, just, I've just posted something quite, con- quite, quite confrontational <laughs> on my li- uh, uh, on my know, LinkedIn about a, exactly a, this. A finely manicured lawn to me can be just as lacking in biodiversity as an artificial lawn to some extent. So you know, but in in, in Wimbledon where I do a lot of my work, there is this. Uh, people like to have their gardens looking nice. And a couple of my clients, when we first started, we would be mowing every week during the year, even in the winter, because that's what they requested. But then some of them started to ask a little bit more about, you know, we've heard this on this program and country file this and blah, blah. And I would just say, well, let's take it down to every couple of weeks. And then we dropped it down. And they've got one garden that we actually haven't mowed the lawn there since... September, October, and quite frankly, the client loves it. It's um, the grass hasn't grown any more than um, probably about two or three inches. Got lots and lots of um, flowers and, and daisies and dandelions and stuff coming through. Last week, we noticed that um, they actually have crocus all over their lawn rather than the one co- you know corner that they have set aside for the crocus. And it's because we just haven't mown it. We've allowed the crocus to grow. And she's, you know, she's really surprised and happy because she'd never seen that happen to her garden before. Um, and during the summer last year, or just, you know, spring to summer, one after leaving the lawn for a little while, bird's foot trefoil was coming up. And when I pointed out to the client what it was, and, and you know, it, it's for a particular, I can't remember which uh, butterfly it's for, but it works particularly well for one. And she's like, brilliant, leave it. So, you know, we've now got to the point with this client that I don't know if we'll ever mow their lawn again, which is fantastic. You know, it's yeah. and it's just education. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the one of the great green roofs of Europe is um is on a um uh, a, a, the water treatment um, pl- one of the water treatment plants that serves Zurich I think it cleans about 25% of um, of Zurich's clean water the, it's called the Moose M-O-O-S um, w- um, uh, water treatment plant now this is this has got four football pitch sized um, green roofs which I've been to many many times and they were they're remarkable it's 100 years old it was covered in the the concrete was covered in bitumen originally just to um to stop it uh to to waterproof it and the the um i think it was three or four inches of sand was thrown up there to stop that catching fire this is a hundred years ago now that's an asphalt roof that's never been um never been replaced but my um like my my uh, formative time, if you like, in the green roof industry, when I went over to Switzerland to um, to do my to do my internship, um, started on um, started on this roof because what had happened exactly as you describe, they'd had um, an ecological survey on this roof that was getting mown uh, twice a year by the um, by the water um, treatment plant operatives and the ecologist realized that there was um, there were orchids growing on the roof and had the had the, had the mowing stopped um and and now there's a um, a relocation program which i was lucky enough to take part in for a week where they they're taking orchids from this green roof and transplanting them all around switzerland to um, oh, wow. to help them um, yeah to help 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 cultivate them um 
elsewhere um at, at other sites it's um it, yeah it's pretty remarkable what happens when you let um, when you let nature take its course and and this is the really this is the dream, really dreamy marrying up of like the that idea of fit and forget which is only ever really an idea um it's um it's like it's like th- it's like thoughtful suspension of um of of um of of the normal kinds of intervention and it's it, it makes it i mean i use the word care or stewardship to think about what you're doing it's like it's bringing it along and an awareness of the kind of the natural processes that are happening under there really helps people to buy into buy into um to what what's going on so um so do you tend to keep an ongoing relationship with the um with the gardens that you um that, that you go along with and do you help um do you help clients to muck in and help do you encourage clients to help uh, to to muck in and, and help out yeah, so um, to most of the gardens I have got, we've had for a minimum of two years and any new client that um, comes on board, I sort of have a particular way of working and I'm not working for the client, I'm working for the plants. And sometimes you'll get a client who will say, well, I need you once a week. And my response is normally, but your plants don't, um, which means that I can give a better service. It means that my way of working is specifically for the plants, the trees and the shrubs. If they have lots of lawn um, and need someone to sweep their patio, then I generally encourage them to get a different team in just for that particular job because it works out financially better for them. Although per hour I'm more expensive than the other team, they see far less of me. Um, And it just means that their garden's being done at the right time, they're getting the best service. So some of my clients I've had four or five years now um, and how we work in their garden has changed. We've gone from full on spraying anything that moved to, you know, not touching any chemicals whatsoever, um, making decent decisions about whether we actually work in the garden that day or not. I mean, the weather recently has been so horrendous that um, some gardens, unless they've got lots of pathways and lots of, you know, outbuildings that we can go and find some work in, then we're not going to be walking all the way across lawns and across borders. It can wait. We're not going to compact soil any more than it needs to be compacted. And generally, we can catch up pretty quickly um, as and when we, you know, once the weather's got a little bit better. And the clients are fine with that. They, they trust us. Um but at the same time, I can go and look at a garden and, you know, it's it's a lovely garden. I saw one recently and, quite frankly, it would have given us three days a week work. It was lovely, apart from the fact it was perfection and pruned and cut within an inch of its life and certain plants clearly had never flowered. And I can't and won't work like that. So um, I, I sort of asked them, maybe they need to find a different gardener because I'm not prepared to compromise on, on my work principles for that kind of garden, unfortunately. That's the... Um that's the dream really to be um to be professionally in a situation where you can um you can you can determine the um like who the clients are that you will work, or rather who the gut what the gardens are and the um and the parameters of those gardens and it's lovely because it also builds an element of trust i mean sometimes i'll call a guy you know a client and say look the weather's been particularly naff this week i and because we have such an ongoing relationship with these gardens I know when somebody else has been out there and moved something, you know, within seconds of turning up. 
So I also know when things don't need to be done. And, you know, sometimes I might not go for two or three weeks because the weather's been so bad, and especially, you know, in February. Gardens are pretty much in limbo in February. It's, you know, all the winter work has been done. We're waiting for that little bit of heat to kick in towards the end of February, beginning of March, when it will take off. But sometimes in February, I'm, I'm just going to say to the client, I'm not going to come. It's a waste of your money. We're not going to be able to do much anyway. So, you know, we'll just leave it for this week. And they're fine with that because they know it's it's, it's an informed decision. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not like we're, we're going to turn up just to make money out of you. Um, it's we're, we're going to do the work that's necessary. Just before, um, just before we um, uh, like kind of wrap up with the questions that I like to, um, I like to ask all my guests at the end. Can I just swing back round to um, to something we spoke about near uh, the start and wonder? Do you try to encourage any of your clients to do little bits themselves? And if you do, and if you do, what are there? Are, there, are you noticing patterns in the kind of tasks that people become amenable to be doing? Yeah. So we've got. Um, if, well, I've, I had a client refer to me who actually only just sort of lives about a two-minute walk away from where I live, which is lovely. And I work with them in a completely different way to all my other clients. So generally with my other clients, they've got pretty large gardens and they have full-on lives. And that's why they have us, because they just don't have the time to always be doing the work in their gardens. They just want to enjoy the garden. Um, but if they do want to do something, um, I do tell them quite bluntly not to do anything until they've checked it with me. And that includes buying plants, because clients are they can their enthusiasm can be wonderful but they can buy the wrong plant put it in the wrong place and then wonder why it's died and i'm just like just just talk to me first but this other set of clients i've got referred to me by a garden designer they want to be hands-on they are a younger couple they've got a few you know a couple of kids with them and um, they just want to know how to do stuff in their garden so my way of working with them is i will go i pop around the house for an hour or so we go into the garden we walk through the garden talk to them about the plants and what sort of stage the plants are in and then i'll give them an idea of okay well you know, those ones need cutting back in October or November and I'll show them how to cut them back but then I follow that up with a list of email instructions and they crack on and they really really enjoy doing that um, they've put uh, rainwater butts into their gardens the ones with um, little planting bits on them so they can grow strawberries out of it and the kids love that um, they were happy to go and buy their own um, mulch and compost. All they needed to know is which which ones should they go and buy. And that's a really nice way of working because then they have got the control and the enjoyment of actually doing the work, but knowing what they're doing and having someone that they can just ping an email to and say, we're not quite sure how to do this. What do you reckon? And I really enjoy that as well. So it's, it's a really nice balance of... Some people, you're just working in their gardens once every two weeks. Um, sometimes a client comes out. I've got one client, half an hour of every single visit is spent walking around her garden with her, pointing out stuff that's changed, stuff that's come into flower, um, even pointing out insects that have never been seen in the garden before. And the other day we found a newt in her pond, which hasn't happened before. And it, that's really nice to see how um, their enjoyment of the garden's changing to the extent I now have husbands come out on those walks asking what they can do in the garden. So, you know, we're setting up tasks for the whole family as well, which is quite nice. Yeah, yeah, fan fantastic. And I wonder also if there's, um, if, there's, if there's some learning, some insight 
in this about how um, about how other people might start to start to get involved. Is there are there do you need to hire a gardener that's willing to do this in order to start learning or are there resources that you're aware of out there for people who want to start taking advantage? It's an interesting one. Again, as a client, you need to sit down and be honest about what you want. Um, we, we all have the same resources. We can all go to a library. I'm old school. We can go and buy books. We can sit on Google. We can look up various websites to find out what we need to know. Or we can ask our gardener if we can pay for an hour or so of their time to have a walk around the garden and, and point things out and be educated that way. Um, it, everyone's different. And I think every single gardener offers very, very different services as well. So it's again, it's finding the right gardener for you to be able to get what you want out of your garden. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fingers crossed that as we, as, especially as we recognise that the um, there are the mental health benefits of, um, of of having access to nature. That I mean, I guess there's always allotments, but that people people will um, will be increasingly able to have someone or access to someone that can provide a bridge for them to you know to, from not knowing anything to um, to being able to um, to take advantage of um, of natural spaces, whether they're their own or or somebody else's. Now, Claire, just before we get to those final questions, there's one other thing which I haven't asked any of my other other um any of my other guests previously but i feel like um i feel like um i I should do here is that are you by any chance um sitting there with a glass of whiskey this evening oh you know me too well yes i'm currently (laughs) sat here with a um a glenn roffey's select reserve alba (laughs) so um i should nice day side (laughs) i should I should say to the listeners that when our um, our paths crossed pre- previously, the um, there was some some work that we did together in a um, in a in a whiskey bar in London, and I I create I I I, um, I could see your chin hit the floor when I said that I enjoyed a whiskey mac. Oh, don't! I mean, everyone is entitled to enjoy whiskey their way. That's what we say in the whiskey industry. But um, yeah, I mean. Whiskey is is a real passion of mine, um, and it's it's developed pretty much along the same timeline as horticulture has. So I'm not quite sure what happened in my life that like I turned to gardening and whiskey, but it must have been pretty horrendous. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I I suppose if if you follow me on on either Twitter or Instagram, you will note that horticulture and whiskey pretty much 50% either side on, on what I talk about when I'm on the, either of those um, you know social media streams but at, the more I get into the whiskey the more I realise that that and horticulture really do have a massive crossover um, there's, there's obviously lots of chat about wood within whiskey um, and, and we <laughs> One of the contentious issues at the moment is about terroir within whiskey and and barley and farming and soil. And so, you know, a lot of the science that we have going on in horticulture is actually going on in whiskey as well. Um, And I, I, yeah, it just makes me chuckle. I, I, I love how they both cross over, to be honest with you. And the fact that I can do my day job in a whiskey bar, um, like that moss wall, that's pretty cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm a very lucky person. That was um, that was that was a really special project. So so listen, um, I would like to ask you, if I may, um, the last few things that I ask all my guests. Um, if you were, and I do hope you prepared, if you were queen for a day, uh, if you could make one change to make a positive I'm queen impact every in the world, day. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't doubt. But but if you um, if you could make if you could make one change to make a positive impact in the world, um, what would it be, and and, and why? 
Uh, now, I, I had to think on this one quite a bit because I, I think I had to think about, you know, what sort of really sets me off and makes me a little bit angry, actually. And I think I think I, I would just want to give everyone the ability to think about their actions on a larger scale, um, like not getting carried away with the best new thing. So, example, at the moment, you know, quite rightly, we're all looking at going peat free. Um and and we should be doing that, but everyone is uh, there's a lot of of chat about Koya, which is you know it's 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 a great replacement. However, for me, I don't believe it's a sustainable um, and ethically friendly replacement for Pete for um, for Pete. It's um, we we have to have a look uh, at no. the impact of of production of Koya before we start using it. And I think this happens with a hell of a lot of stuff that's new. Um, we need, to, you know, battery-operated tools. Fantastic. We're, we're not putting, you know, fumes back out into the area where we're particularly working in at that moment. But those batteries need to be made and they need to be charged. And when we're making them, we're having to mine in order to get the metal. So I think we need to be able to take a step back a little bit more and just look at the actions that lead up to our action and then the impact of our action. And I think if, if we could all do that a little bit more, we might have some more positive changes going on in the world. That was very deep. I'm sorry. No, I, 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 I agree. I, I, I think it can be, um, I think it'd be very much the case that, um, that people, people want to do the right thing. And often it's um, access to, um, to all, to all the information. Most people, if they knew something had a negative effect, wouldn't want to do it. Of course, there'll always be some, but, but I think it's, um, it's, um, well, it's, this is why, um, opportunities like this are great to, um, to share that message because it helps people to, to find ways of acquainting themselves with the, um, you know, with the wider, wider ramifications of their, um, of their actions so that they can uh, maybe, maybe, maybe change their behavior. So no, I can, I can endorse that. I, um, I have, um, three good things that I'd like to find out from you. Firstly, um, a book or a podcast that you, um, that you think everyone should know about. Well, I'm going to be really, really biased here because obviously I'm going to um, say that the podcast that everyone should be listening to is Sarah Wilson's Roots and All podcast. Um, not only is she my partner in crime business world, business wise, but it's an awesome podcast. It's it's giving out some brilliant information um, from gardening through to you know native plants to wildlife to you know just having a little bit of a more informed um not so fluffy podcast if i'm allowed to say that it's it's brilliantly informative and um as a person who rarely listens to podcasts because they make her fall asleep it is one that i will listen to um like i say i'm a bit biased but it is award-winning and and full of awesome well, uh, content with excellent guests so yeah you're absolutely right. I'll, we we will of course link to that in the um, in the notes accompanying the show. But happy to second that. I've learned I've learned a lot in the um, in the months that I've been um, I've been listening to it about a whole range of things, and it's wider than um, than than people might think when they hear about um, that. It's like kind of loosely based around around gardening. Yeah, very definitely endorse that sentiment. Okay, then um, one um, person or social media account that you admire. 
again, I have to think about this because, you know, when, when, you, when you're on social media, for me personally, I, I don't get too personal on, on social media. It's very much about um, work and, and sort of keeping people at arm's length. So then, but because of that, I find it a little bit of an echo chamber. It's, it's all about whiskey and it's all about horticulture. And I think sometimes we just need to follow people who are absolutely nothing to do with what we do with our daily lives, be able to get a different aspect on the world. Um, and I'm not going to name a particular person because he has a, an actual secure shutdown count. He's a very private person. But he, in, in, in particular, um, he does philosophy and politics and speaks four different languages and will tweet and retweet stuff that I would never consider looking at or reading. And it does give me a completely different perspective on the world, which is fantastic. But a couple of accounts that I do follow, um, the first one is the Auschwitz Memorial account. I just think it's it's such a moving account and something that we should be um, constantly sort of touching on the way the world's changing at the moment it's just a little bit of one of those places that just sort of, sort of brings you back and, and makes you realize that we're lucky at the moment our lives are good at the moment um and hopefully it won't get bad but on the completely other side of that on instagram there's an account called the good news movement which is fantastic and all it has is good news and great stories and people doing nice things um which is something we all need to follow because you know there's a lot of negativity and politics and stuff going on at the moment and I think sometimes it's just nice to see something good happening so yeah I definitely recommend the good news movement on Instagram oh that's cool I'll um, I'll dig that on link to it that sounds like exactly what the world needs right now um okay then and finally um your favorite place to immerse yourself in nature okay, and well, why it isn't well I do have a particular place but there's two particular scenarios and it's either under trees I love being near trees I couldn't I'm, I'm terrible at identifying them but I love being around trees um I just find it very calming any time of the year in fact I think I've put up a load of photographs today on Instagram with trees from Wimbledon Common um either that or near water I find both those sort of scenarios are just the place where I can go and, and settle down and just take some time out and breathe really but if I had to pick a particular place um, there's an olive tree in the courtyard of St Paul's Pillar in, in Paphos in Cyprus which I have been known to sit under and read a book for many hours whenever I go over to Cyprus because it's just so wonderfully peaceful so yeah that would be my place Oh, uh, I I haven't had any winter sun this year for a number oh, of reasons. I, so, um, I have missed Cyprus <laughs> this year. Tell me. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm I'm going to be looking at flights um, after um, after this, and obviously planting trees to compensate for any uh, for any flights that I take. Um, of course, of course, and travel economy, uh, not I, first class. I, I don't think you need to worry about um, worry about that. Claire, Claire, thank you ever so much for taking some taking some time out of your evening and um, and talking about veterans' growth and, um, and 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 your take on um, on all things horticulture. It's been um, it's been really revealing, and um, and I'm grateful. Thank you so much. I just uh, yeah, hope your your listeners enjoy it.